0: Thanks, you guys. I love, I love that song, and I love Christmas songs. I have a confession to make. I actually started listening to Christmas songs back in August. Um, <laughs> hey, it's, I, I would actually listen to them all year round if my family would let me, but uh, the, my excuse was that I had to begin thinking about the Christmas concerts and thinking about Advent and all that, so it was a good, uh, good opportunity to listen to Christmas songs. But I love all the different kinds of Christmas songs. I love the light ones, you know, like White Christmas and and Jingle Bells and those, you know, those fun ones that I remember from my childhood, Frosty the Snowman. I'll even admit that I'll listen to some of the songs from Frozen as well. Um, You know, it's just, I don't know, it's just fun. I love those, but I also love the ones that are deeper, you know, like the one that uh, that they played last week, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And you think about the depth of that song and the cry, the call that we are asking for God to come and be with us and rescue us and those songs that are deeper and more reflective like that. And so I love kind of the whole variety of the Christmas songs that we sing during this season. And then you ask yourself about this song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Is that one of those like lighter ones? Or is that one of those more deeper and reflective songs? And part of the challenge is that the song is often written, its title is often written without a comma. And so you begin to wonder, what does that mean? What's going on there? And some of you are saying, okay, here he goes. Here's the grammar nerd, you know. And if you know me, yes, I'm a little bit of a grammar nerd, and I enjoy those sorts of things. But it's actually fairly important in this situation, and I want to show you why. So take a look at this picture on the screen, and you tell me what Rachel Ray is thinking of here. Does she find inspiration in cooking and eating her family and her dog, or does she find inspiration in cooking, comma, and her family, comma, and her dog? You see the importance of a comma in that situation? Take a look at this one. Who's allowed to use this particular toilet? Only the disabled, elderly, pregnant children. I don't know if there are anybody who fits that category here. So this is actually a fairly serious problem. So the question becomes, is the song that, that, that the band just you know, played and sang so beautifully, is it God rest ye, merry gentlemen, or is it God rest ye, merry gentlemen? Where is it? Where does the comma go? If it's the first one, if it's God rest ye, merry gentlemen, it's being sung to a bunch of merry gentlemen. And at the Christmas season, you've got to ask yourself the question, is it basically saying that these merry gentlemen have had a little too much of the Christmas spirits at the Christmas party and they're being told to rest, <laughs> chill out, relax, you know, that sort of thing? Or are they? is it being spoken to some people who need to become merry? God rest ye, merry gentlemen and ladies. This was written hundreds of years ago, so you know, a little bit uh, uh, patriarchal at that point. I think the comma actually should go after Mary because there was, uh, back in the day, there was a greeting that people would use when they greeted one another. God rest ye Mary. You know, we say, hey, have a good day. Or we say, Merry Christmas. Or we say, God bless you. All those sorts of things. There was a greeting, God rest ye Mary, gentlemen and ladies. And so this song is saying to us, God rest ye merry, be blessed, find peace, find hope, find comfort in joy because of what God has done. And I love those fun songs, Sleigh Ride, Let It Snow, 12 Days of Christmas. I love all of those and they help me to get in the mood for the Christmas season. But there's not a lot of depth to songs like that. But when you sing a song and when you read the words and when you hear it sung, a song like, God rest ye merry, gentlemen, you realize there's some real depth there. There's a, there's a, a realism in that song because if you read through the various verses, it's not all life is wonderful, everything is perfect, everything's going just fine. It says, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Life in this broken world isn't always easy. It's difficult. There are problems. And reality says we're going to face challenges in this life. And so we need some comfort. We need some joy. We need some rest. And this song is talking about how we can find that rest and that comfort and that joy. It's setting it's, it's setting our lives in the context of a much, much larger story. And if we actually sang all six of the verses, you'd see that it's working its way through a major portion of the Christmas story. It's talking about... Jesus being born, it's talking about the angels appearing to the shepherds. It's talking about the shepherds being so joyful that they can't help but run and go to Bethlehem and see what God had done in Bethlehem and then tell everybody else what's going on. And it's saying that story, that truth, that reality is what brings us comfort and joy and rest and peace and hope in the midst of the broken world in which we live. And all of that dovetails, it fits so perfectly well with our Advent celebration. And for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, starting last Sunday and working away all the way through to Christmas Eve, each of those four Sundays, we're celebrating Advent. We're lighting a different candle on our Advent wreath to remind us of a different aspect of the Christmas story. So last week, the first candle that we lit was called the Prophecy Candle, and it reminded us of the promises that God had made that he was going to send a Messiah, send a savior to rescue us from the difficulties of life in this broken world and to restore our broken relationship with him. So when we sing the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're saying, God, fulfill that promise that you made to be with us, because the name Emmanuel means God is with us. And so that's what we talked about last week. And this week is the Bethlehem candle. And the Bethlehem candle focuses on the preparations that Mary and Joseph made for the birth of their son, who was going to be both their Savior and ours as well. And if you think back on that Christmas story, if you think back on the preparations that they had to make, it was a whole lot more difficult for them than it often is for us when we're preparing for the births of our children. And so even that first Christmas story is set in in light of a, of a difficult and a dark and a challenging time. And so what I want us to do is look through the passage that Beth read to us just a few minutes ago and take a look at some of the challenges, some of the obstacles that Joseph and Mary faced as they were getting ready for the birth of their son. Ask yourself this question, what was it like for Mary and Joseph as they were getting ready for the birth of their child. And and so many of us are familiar with this story, but put aside the pictures that you have in your mind and the warm, fuzzy feelings that you have in your mind and just kind of look at it again and let's see some of the challenges and the difficulties that they faced as they were preparing for their son to be born. In those days, Caesar Augustus, as you decree... That a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So, right off, right off, right at the very beginning, the first thing that said is, there's a Roman census that's going to be taken. And underlying that is what, to us in a sense, is an obvious fact. But at that point, Israel was under Roman occupation, it was dominated by Rome. They didn't have an autonomous government and Rome was imposing draconian taxes on the Jewish people and Caesar Augustus who in some sense viewed himself as a god decided that he wanted to raise more taxes so it was time for a census and so he says I'm going to take a census of the entire Roman Empire at this point and so verse 3 everyone went to their own hometown to register So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Today, you can fill out a form. It comes in the mail. Eventually, it'll be available on the internet. And if you don't fill out the form, the census takers will knock on your door and ask you to fill out this form telling how many people are in your household and what kind of a dog you have and all the other sorts of things, you know, what Christmas songs you listen to or don't listen to. I don't know all the questions. They actually probably wouldn't ask that particular question. Little issue of separation of church and state. But the point being, the census is a little bit of a bother for us. comes around, what, every 10 years or so. It's a little bit of a hassle for us. For them, it was a huge imposition because they didn't knock on your door. They didn't hand you a form. They didn't send you something in the mail and saying, fill this out and here's a self-addressed stamped envelope. Instead, you had to go to your ancestral hometown in order to register, in order to be counted for this this census. And Joseph's ancestral hometown was Bethlehem, but Mary and Joseph were living up in Nazareth, which is about 90 miles north of where Bethlehem was located. So they have to make their way from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, And they don't have trains, they don't have planes, they don't have cars, they don't have buses. So they're probably, she's probably riding on the back of a donkey, he's probably walking alongside. This 90-mile journey would normally take four or five days. She is very pregnant at this point, which adds to some of the challenges of the whole travel thing. So it probably takes them the better part of the week to make their way all the way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. You think about it today, you're seven, eight, Nine months pregnant, traveling is anything but fun today. Work your way back then, and you gotta ride on the back of a donkey for 90 miles? while well, you're trying to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem just because your husband was born in Bethlehem? And the Roman, the hated Roman ruler says, you gotta be counted in Bethlehem. No fun, not enjoyable, not an easy situation for Joseph and Mary. So Joseph went there, verse 5, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. She was pledged to be married to him. They're not married yet, and she's expecting a child. Now, we know the end of the story, and we know the beginning of the story, and we know all about the angels appearing to Mary and Joseph and telling them what's going to happen. It doesn't make it all that easy. Yes, they had some understanding of what was going on, but put yourself in their shoes Back then, even today, you're unmarried, you're a teenager, your fiance is a teenager, and you are eight or nine months pregnant, and you're not yet married. It's a little bit of a challenge today. It's a scandal back then. So she's got to deal with that whole shame of going to Joseph's hometown, very obviously showing. And so you've got that as part of the context when Jesus is about to be born. So while they were there, while they're in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, she placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Think about it for a second. They're going to their ancestral, to Joseph's ancestral hometown. Why aren't they staying with with family? Maybe they didn't have any close family there. We don't know for sure. Maybe they had some family, but the family didn't want them there because she's pregnant and they're not yet married. We don't know, but we do know that they weren't able to stay with family there. And we do know that it's highly likely if they, if they had had any significant amount of money, somebody would have been able to find a room for them. Money will open up an awful lot of doors. They didn't have a lot of money, They weren't able to find a room where they they could stay, so the innkeeper says, you can stay next door in the barn with the animals. Think about the irony here. The king of the Jews, and they know, Mary and Joseph know, that their son is going to be born king of the Jews. The king of the Jews, the Messiah, the savior of the world. Think about it. He should be born like in Beth Israel Hospital in downtown Jerusalem, right? Instead, he's born in this small town, probably three, four, 500 people at that point in the town of Bethlehem, maybe a maximum, 1,000 people, a relatively no-name suburb of Jerusalem. And he's born in a barn surrounded by animals and his first crib is a feeding trough, right? No decorating the room, no picking out the color scheme, no getting the beautiful bumpers for the crib and the stuffed animals. They got the live animals there. They might wanna stuff those live animals because think about it. The animals are gonna be noisy. The animals are gonna be smelly and all that goes with that. And that's where Jesus was born. And then who are the first visitors it's not like it's mom and dad coming over to say hello. It's a bunch of shepherds, and the shepherds are smelly. And you don't want these guys hanging around just after you've given birth to your firstborn son. So, this is the scene when Mary gives birth to Jesus. Imagine what it must have been like for them that night. The Romans are running their country, she's pregnant. And they're not married. And when the baby's born, he's born in a barn. That is not the way anyone, that's not the way anyone would imagine that their son would be born. And so from a human perspective, their lives are pretty dark. It's pretty challenging. It's pretty difficult. It's probably even pretty discouraging. But there's something bigger that's going on. And while they understood a little of it, they didn't understand all of it. There's something bigger that's going on. And God is beginning to bring light out of the darkness. Jesus is supposed to be the king of the Jews. They've been told this. It's been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is supposed to be the king of the Jews. But in order to be shown to be the legitimate king of the Jews, he needs to be born in the city of David because David being the greatest king of the Jews in the Old Testament, there's a promise that was made to David that one of his descendants was going to sit on the throne. And the way that they were able to show the lineage then was to have the baby be born in Bethlehem. But you've got a problem here. Joseph and Mary are living 90 miles north in Nazareth. So how are you going to get them from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem? God uses a Roman emperor named Caesar Augustus who views himself as a god. He sees himself as in control of the lives of all of his subjects. And so he decrees that there's going to be this census. And from the perspective of the people who are under his authority, Caesar is in charge. But what we find is that in spite of that, the god of the universe is ultimately the one who's in charge. And he takes that darkness, that census, that hassle of that 90-mile donkey ride from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and he uses that to get Mary and Joseph to be exactly where Jesus needed to be born in order to be shown that he's the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, that he is the rightful king, not Caesar Augustus but instead, Jesus, the son of Joseph. The Roman occupation made life miserable for the Jews, and it made life miserable for the early Christians. They didn't have self-rule, they had some level of it, but all of their governors, all of their quote-unquote kings had to be appointed and approved by Rome they had to pay these taxes, they had to show respect to Caesar and to the other Roman leaders. Essentially, you know, it'd be like some other country coming in, conquering the United States, telling us who our president, who our governors, who our local officials are going to be. We have to pay taxes to them and on and on and on. And that's what life was like for the Jews and for the early Christians under the Roman rule. But God was working even in that darkness because, you see, there were three really key things that were going on during the time uh, that Rome was in charge of Israel. First of all, you've got a time of relative peace. It's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Really, for the, the first time in recorded history, The known world is relatively at peace. There are no major, even minor wars going on at the time when Jesus was born and and living his life and shortly after he died. So it's a time of relative peace. The second thing that you've got is a pretty amazing system of roads. The Romans were really good at building roads. So you've got an excellent transportation and communication system going on because of the Roman roads. And the third thing that you have is the universal language. Greek was spoken by all of the educated people, and many of the uneducated people at least had some working knowledge of the Greek language. So really, for the first time in recorded history, you've got a relative peace, you've got an incredible transportation system, and you've got a common language. And that's the world into which Jesus was born. So what difference does that make? Fast forward about 37 years. Jesus is crucified, he dies, he rises again, he appears to his followers, and they begin spreading the good news of the significance of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. They begin spreading it, and it spreads throughout the whole known world in an incredibly short period of time. You've got to remember, no newspapers, no TV, no internet, none of the media that we have today. But at that point, you've got a relative peace, you've got the the transportation system, you've got the common language, you've got the perfect environment for the spread of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And so God takes that darkness, that Roman oppression, that Roman domination, and he turns it into light. He turns it into something good. He uses it for good so that the message of the freedom Of the life, of the hope, of the rest, of the comfort and joy can be spread in a way that there's no way, even 50 or 100 years earlier, it could have been spread as effectively. And those are just a couple of examples from this story of Jesus' birth. Just a couple of examples how God was in control that whole time, how he was turning darkness into light, how he was bringing good out of evil in order to accomplish his purposes, in order to write his bigger story. Did Joseph and Mary know all this? No. They didn't understand all of it. Even afterwards, even after that it all happened, they probably didn't have a full understanding of it. But they did know that their stories were part of a bigger story. They did know that God was doing something more with them, something that they, fully, they didn't fully understand, something that they couldn't fully appreciate. But they realized that yes, the hassles, the difficulty, the, the interruption to their lives, the shame that they were going through, that God was gonna use all of that because their God was so much bigger than they could see. So much more powerful than they could imagine. And they looked to him and they trusted him and they said, okay, we'll trust you. We'll do it your way. As Mary said over in the Gospel of Matthew, be it done to me as you have said. And I think as they looked back on their lives later on and all that they went through and began to understand just a little bit more of what God was doing, I think that they were glad that God chose them to be part of that bigger story because ultimately what he was doing was not ultimately for their comfort at that very moment, but for their long-term comfort, for their long-term joy, for their long-term salvation, and for the comfort and joy and salvation of us 2,000 years later. Jesus was born in a small town called Bethlehem just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. He died on a small hill called Calvary just outside of Jerusalem. When Jesus was born his mother wrapped him in strips of cloth and she placed him in a wooden feed trough in a barn. When Jesus died, he was being nailed to a wooden cross and then he was wrapped in strips of cloth and he was placed in a borrowed tomb. If I were writing the story, that's not how I would have written Jesus' entrance into the world. And it's certainly not how I would have written his exit from the world. I would never have thought that the creator of the universe would enter into the story that he was writing Never would have thought that he would have entered into that story. And if he were going to enter into that story, I would have never written him into that story as a little baby born to a relatively poor, completely obscure, unmarried couple, making them travel 90 miles just so that he could be born in a barn and laid in a feed trough. And I absolutely never would have had him crucified at the hands of the Romans and the request of the Jews. Never in a million years would I or any of us thought to write that story that way. But if God had not done it that way, we wouldn't be able to sing, God rest ye Mary, gentlemen and ladies, because of what God has done. God turned that darkness into light. He turned that evil into good. He brought life out of death. And as a result of that, we've got rest, we've got comfort, we've got joy, and we've got salvation. Think about your own life. Have you ever had an experience where... You've been able to look back on something that happened in your life and see God bringing light out of the darkness, God bringing good out of something that was evil. It's not making the darkness light. It's not making the evil good. It's not saying that this bad thing is good, but it's God working in the darkness to bring light out of it. It's God working in the evil to bring good out of it. Have you ever had something like that? Because if you have, let me encourage you, Reflect on that, think about that, pray about that, and ask God to help you to see that in light of the bigger picture, in light of the grand narrative that He's been writing since the creation of the world. Ask Him to help you to see that in a new and a fresh way and to appreciate it and to remember it the next time that you go through the darkness. Several years ago, I went through a period of burnout and depression, several months where things were looking really, really, really dark. And in the midst of that darkness, it was really hard to see what God was doing, to see that there was any good coming from that darkness. And it was not good. That darkness was not good. That burnout was not good but God used it in my life for good because he reminded me again and again and again that I needed to rely on him, that I could rely on him, that I could find my comfort and joy ultimately in him and only in him. And so God turned that darkness into light for me. And as I look back on that now and I see the way in which God worked and in the way in the, in the years since then, God has used that to give me a deeper appreciation for the suffering that others are going through and just maybe in, in, in a small way be able to bring some comfort to them. I look back on that and while I'd never want to repeat it because it was not good, I'm grateful that I went through that time because God used it for good. He brought light out of that darkness. And I look back and I thank God for how he used that in my life to draw me closer to himself and to be able to use me to encourage other people. If you're going through a time of darkness now, ask God to show you the light. Ask him to help you to see that darkness in the light of the bigger story. Ask him, even when you can't see the light, to give you hope and peace and comfort and joy, not because of the darkness, but in spite of it, recognizing that God is working in so much bigger of a way than we could ever imagine, and that he showed that to us by sending his son to be born to this poor, unmarried, Jewish couple to grow up, to live, to suffer and die on the cross, to rise again so that we could have hope, so that we could have comfort, so that we could have a restored relationship with our Creator. And if you're doing well, if things are going well now, it's not a time of darkness, it's a time of light, it's a time of joy. Thank God for that and ask Him to help you to have a new appreciation for the blessings that He's brought into your life. And the next time, the darkness comes and it will come for all of us in different ways. The next, time, the next time that the darkness comes, ask God to remind you of the times of the light and to give you hope and to give you rest and to give you comfort and to give you joy. God is writing a bigger story and Jesus' birth is one of the high points of that story. God, rest ye merry gentlemen and ladies. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. As you sing those words, As you listen to those words, ask God to give you rest, to make you merry, not just happy, but merry at a deep level, to comfort you when you're hurting, to give you joy in sorrow, because Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day. Let's pray together. Father, it's an amazing thought to think that you chose to have your son enter into this world and go through all that he did in order to rescue us and to bring us rest and comfort and joy. And I thank you that you did that. And I pray that this Advent season, this time that we're getting ready and preparing for Christmas. I pray that you would remind us of truths that we already know. Help us to see new truths about who you are and what you've done. And I pray that you would bring us comfort, that you would bring us joy, that you would make us merry because of what you've done in sending your Son to be the Savior of the world. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you take off, let me just encourage you, this coming week on Tuesday evening and Saturday morning, we're going to have a a couple of prayer meetings. We're going to be praying for several different things. First, we're going to be praying for our pastor searches, both for uh, a new senior pastor as well as a new student ministry pastor. We're going to be praying about our year-end financial needs and our year-end giving. We're going to be praying with one another about that. We're also going to be praying about the Christmas concerts that God would work in, in those and use them, and praying that God would work in the lives of the people that we invite so that they would come to know him and grow in their relationship with him. So consider coming out to those, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Thanks.